Now tonight, we're going to discuss a topic that for a great many of you, I trust is only barely familiar. As you know, last week, we began a six-week series called Major World Religions. We would put this under the category of history. As we are studying history in Bible and theology, these main foundations of the Christian faith, part of the history foundation is not only our history, but it is helpful for Christians to have a robust understanding of the history of other major competing world religions so that you can better engage them. So I just want to say from the outset, the purpose of this study, my purpose tonight, is not to create caricatures. My purpose is to educate so that you will be better equipped to bring the gospel to those who share a radically different worldview. Last week, Rick Blasey stood in my stead, and we addressed the major world religion that is most similar to Christianity, but is indeed not Christianity. And that is the major world religion called Judaism. Now, Judaism, most of us are fairly familiar with because it was part and parcel of the Bible. It was where the great divergence began in the Gospels. Jesus came, they rejected Him, thus began the split of Judaism and Christianity. But did you know there is actually one additional major world religion that shares a great deal with Christianity and Judaism? There are three major world religions that are together called the three Abrahamic faiths, they largely share, in general, the Old Testament. Now, you're going to hear me say, you're going to understand why I said in general in a moment, but they all claim Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, the kings. They share a collective view, generally, of the Old Testament. Of course, Christianity does. We preach from the Old Testament. Judaism, as you might expect, they believe all this because they basically believed everything up until Jesus. They just didn't think Jesus was the Son of God. But did you know there was a third major world religion that you are all familiar with, but few of you may have even known that this major world religion actually shares a great deal in common with the Judeo-Christian reading of the Old Testament. But as we'll discuss tonight, they go far astray. For tonight, we are going to discuss perhaps the most well-known major world religion outside of Christianity and Judaism, and that is what you know well to be called Islam. Tonight, we're going to study it. My goal is to give you an overview and to help break down some of the caricature so that you have a real, robust understanding of the religion. This is going to feel more like a seminar. I'm not going to be able to exhort you because everything I'm going to tell you tonight is wrong. <laughs> so you understand how when I typically when I'm up here, Kyler doesn't know how to teach. He only knows how to preach. I, I can't preach tonight because all of this is falsehood. But I'm going to try to help break it down as clear as I know how so that you have a more robust understanding of what actually is it. What do they believe? Where do they come from? What do we do with this religion known as Islam? Why don't you join me as we pray? We'll ask God to help us, and then we'll pursue our study tonight. Father, I am asking now that you would come, and by the power of your Spirit, grant us an understanding of this great, great deception that is spreading around the world. It's unusually spreading even within this nation. 
We're asking, oh God, that you would help us see it, understand it, so that we might bring the true hope of the gospel. Would the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, shine brightly in our hearts and in the hearts of those who have not believed it, including Muslims. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Islam? What comes to your mind when the name Muslim rings in your ears? I wonder for many of you, is it a a particularly difficult event? Often as a Western Christianized individual, when we hear Islam, our minds naturally go to some pretty significant, difficult events. You may remember the famed 1979 Iranian Revolution. And in 1980, it became particularly notable because of the Iranian hostage crisis that basically tore apart Jimmy Carter's presidency and ended the day. In fact, it was like the hour Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as our president. Perhaps that rings a bell. Or maybe you may recall in the 1980s, the Beirut bombings of our embassy. Or maybe even 1993, when the World Trade Center in New York was bombed by uh, Islamic terrorists. Of course, who amongst us doesn't know acutely the pain and horror of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks by Al-Qaeda Islamic jihadists? Or, you know, perhaps you really can't help but just think about the Afghanistan war against Islamic warriors or the Iraq war. You just can't help but have your mind drawn to events. Maybe your mind is drawn to people. When you hear Islam, you think of some of the most famous Muslims in history. Of course, the most famous, the founder, you perhaps think of the name Muhammad. Or if you're not so historically minded, you're more of a pop culture person, maybe you think of Muhammad Ali. (laughs) Your mind goes there. Or maybe somebody as infamous as Osama bin Laden. That's where your mind goes. Or you may just kind of picture in your mind these cultural things that are so different from our culture. When you hear Islam, you think of the turban. Or if you're a woman, you think of the hijab. That's that covering that covers their their hair. Or maybe you think of Sharia law. You've heard that on the news a lot. How many of you have heard of the Sunnis and the Shiites? I mean, my word, every major newscaster talked at length during the mid-2000s in the midst of the Iraq war about the insurgency and the internecine fights between the Sunni tribes and the Shiite tribes. You didn't know what any of it meant, but you learned those names. Or maybe your mind goes to just the whole concept of jihad in general. When you hear Islam, it probably... As a citizen of the United States in this century, it probably evokes senses of fear and just complete bewilderment. It seems so other. What I want to do tonight is what I want to help you see more clearly what they believe, where they came from, why they exist. And an important thing to note is not all, in fact, the vast majority are not radicalized. There's a lot of Islamic individuals that live in your neighborhood. They attend your schools. Now, we as Christians believe with every fiber of our being that the sum and substance of their faith is false, it's wrong. But what I want to help you understand is is what is actually involved in this religion so that you can, with greater growing confidence, bring the gospel of Jesus to them and recognize that they are but flesh as you. They put their kids to bed at night. 
They eat three meals a day or so. They're, they're like you, and they need the hope you have. So let's do that tonight. And I want to do so by kind of picking apart the Muslim faith, Islam, by addressing five questions. I think these are five questions you ought to ask pretty much of any major faith to help you understand it. First off, where do they come from? Where did, how did Islam begin? What's the story here? I'm going to spend the majority of our night painting a historical picture. I love telling stories. And I'm going to tell you guys the story of Islam, where it came from and how it got to well, what we know to be Islam today. We'll answer that question. And then we're going to go through some particulars to kind of help us get a grip on it. What's their authority? Where do they, what do they appeal to? What's the Bible, the scripture they use? We're going to address their sacred texts. What do they believe? We'll look at the theology of Islam. What do they practice? We'll look at some of the distinctives. Why is the, the worship in an Islamic mosque so radically different from worship in a Christian church? We'll, we'll discuss that tonight. And then we'll conclude our time with perhaps the most critical question. How is the gospel, the Christian gospel, the one true gospel, how is it different from the message of Islam? We're going to talk about, in conclusion, Islam's key differences from the Christian faith so that you, Lord willing, and I will be better equipped to bring the gospel of Jesus to them. So let's begin our study tonight by asking where on earth they came from. And this might shock you, but I have to begin this narrative in church history. If you recall with me, it was a year ago we discussed this, but the Christian church was founded upon Jesus's resurrection and ascension to the Father. He sends the Spirit at Pentecost, and he sends out Uh, emissaries, disciples, including the Apostle Paul, as the gospel is spread out over the whole known Roman world. And as the gospel is just making inroads all around the Roman world, so too the Roman Empire is expanding. In fact, eventually the Roman emperor, Constantine, he becomes, uh, at least supposedly, a Christian. He makes Christianity the legal religion of the empire. In fact, he outlaws anything else, and Christianity becomes commonplace, and it seems like it can't be stopped. It's covering basically all of Europe, all of North Africa, all of Mesopotamia, where modern-day Israel, Syria, Iraq is. It is just everywhere until suddenly, out of nowhere, in the early 600s, all of a sudden, there is this strange, insurgent force of people that begin encroaching on the Christianized Roman Empire. And this strange group of people sounded different, looked different, and brought a distinct variation on this Abrahamic faith with such fervor and zeal that it was spreading like wildfire and soon overtook North Africa, soon overtook Mesopotamia, soon overtook modern-day Turkey and Spain. They were an insurgent force. They brought with them a distinct culture. These were Arabs, people from modern-day Arabia, bringing with them a religion the world had never heard or seen of, the religion called Islam. Where did they come from? Who are these people? We got to go back to the around the year 570 in modern day Saudi Arabia, where there was a young Bedouin boy born to a tribe 
In modern-day Saudi Arabia, back in the 600s, it was desert-like as it is today. There were lots of Jewish encampments, lots of Christianized encampments, and lots of Bedouin people. Bedouins are like wanderers. Y'all ever seen or heard of a Bedouin? They drank a lot of camel's milk. In fact, some, that's all they consumed. There was no water. All they drank was camel's milk. Sometimes they didn't eat anything but it. They would wander from place to place. They collected in tribes. There was no organized government. Well, there was a young boy born into one of these uh, Bedouin tribes, the Karash tribe. And in this uh, tribe, this young boy is born into abject circumstances. His name was Muhammad. Muhammad's uh, parents died at an early age. He was passed off under the care of his grandfather. His grandfather soon uh, died as well, and he was eventually placed under the custody of his uncle. And he was essentially raised by this uncle. Now, I doubt that this is historical. This has got to be probably uh, tradition in Islam. But tradition says that this young boy, Muhammad, at a young age, upon traveling with his uncle around modern-day Mesopotamia, modern-day Israel, a Christian monk, Christian monk, encountered this young boy and prophesied that he would become a prophet himself. You know, do with that as you may. Muhammad eventually comes of age and starts working for a woman 15 years his senior. He's 25, she's 40, she's wealthy. Her name is Khadijah, and Khadijah liked this young man. He worked hard for her, he did a lot for her, so she married him. <laughs> kind of an odd culture. He marries a woman 15 years his senior, and uh, Muhammad, with this wealthy woman, ends up becoming a trader, a uh, trader. He's selling a bunch of goods in modern-day Saudi Arabia. He has six kids. His daughter, Fatima, is the only one that basically survives into adulthood. And he, as he's raising his family, is exposed to Judaism. He's exposed to Christianity. And he's got this prophet complex, evidently, in his head. So much so that he hated all of the politics. He hated all of the religious dissent within his community. So he would, and he particularly hated the idolatry. There was all kinds of idolatry in the city he lived in. He lived in a city called Mecca. Y'all ever heard of Mecca? It's a famed city to this day. So he would routinely leave the city of Mecca and go into the mountainsides. Uh, Mecca was surrounded by mountainous desert landscape. And he would escape up into these hillsides, evidently, for prayer and contemplation. Well, as tradition attests, one day he supposedly went up into this cave called the Cave of Hira. And he would go up into this cave to pray. But this one time, as he was in this cave... It was the year 610 A.D. He goes up to pray and meditate and fast, and evidently he was confronted by the angel Gabriel. Hmm. Y'all know that the angel Gabriel is the starter, evidently, allegedly, of Islam? The angel Gabriel encounters this young man, Muhammad, and gives him a vision. In this vision, the angel Gabriel says that he is a prophet of God and commands him to recite. There's the key word. Recite. Repeat. Recite what I am telling you. So he began to recite 
or repeat the words the angel Gabriel gave him. Do you know what the word recite is in Arabic? Quran. Y'all know what the Quran is? The Quran? The Quran is nothing more than a written record of everything Muhammad recited, evidently told him by the angel Gabriel. He begins to recite this, but he's a little nervous. He's got all this revelation, but it feels weird. All of a sudden, he's a prophet now. What does he do? So he doesn't really tell anybody. He goes home. He does confide in his wife. His wife likes it. She probably thinks, oh, this will be good. My husband's about to be a famous prophet. She encourages him, as does a cousin. And together they say, you need to keep doing this. You you need to take this message. This is the hand of God on your life. And so they go. It took him about three years where he kind of privately had some followers. But eventually he decided, I need other people to know this message that God has given me. And so around the year 613 A.D., he begins to go public in the city he lives in, the city of Mecca. And he begins to tell everybody the main message were told him. Do you know what the main message was? I'm going to simplify it. This is an oversimplification, but the biggest summation of what he believes the angel Gabriel told him in that cave of Hira is that there are not multiple gods. He lived in Mecca where there were gods everywhere, idols everywhere. His revelation was that there is but one God and his name is Allah, which Allah literally means the God. There is One God, and Muhammad is his prophet. That was the summarizing statement of Islam. And the main message of Islam, the main message that Gabriel gave him was, you must submit to Allah. Do you want to know what the word submit is in this original language? Islam. Islam means submit So Islam is nothing more than submitting to the God, Allah. A follower of God's will, one who actually submits to the will of Allah, that's what you call a Muslim. Muslim is a submitter to the will of God. This was the central message of his faith. But guess what began to happen? Do you think all the people of Mecca took to his message? They didn't like it because they liked their gods. It was part of their trade. It was part of their economy. And so all these tribes began to boycott his family. They didn't like him. They wanted him to get out of town. And he would eventually get out of town. But before he did, he had another purportedly miraculous experience. First time, Gabriel met him in the cave of Hara. This time, Gabriel did one better. He took him on what's historically called the night journey. He takes Muhammad from Mecca, and guess where uh, uh, Muhammad gets taken to? Jerusalem. And on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, there was a a mosque there, a place of worship there called the Mosque Asqasra. And at this mosque, he prays with Abraham, Moses, Jesus, do y'all realize this was part of Islam? Muhammad is praying with all the prophets of the Old Testament, allegedly, near what is present day the Dome of the Rock. Are y'all familiar with the Dome of the Rock, which is where the old Temple Mount stood? 
that is where he begins to pray with these prophets. And then he purportedly ascends to heaven where God, Allah, gives him instructions that he must pray five times daily if he is going to withstand all the persecution he's getting back in Saudi Arabia, in Mecca. So then he gets transported back. Who knows if it's like Star Wars and he just like zooms back. I don't know, but he gets back there to Mecca after having this night journey. And guess what? Nothing changed. The people really didn't like him. Eventually, his followers start bleeding out of the city, and they start heading north. I think I have a map up there. If you can look at the map, they leave Mecca, and they start heading north to... Sorry, guys. I know this little screen really messes things up. Oh, to the little town called Medina. And he goes and escapes to this little town, Medina. And guess what happens in Medina? Everybody likes him there. All of a sudden, he's got himself a little fan base. And in Medina, everybody starts believing what he believes. They view him as a prophet there, and they become warriors. They become so strong and powerful that it shocks everybody. They start defeating people just like Israel defeated people in Canaan. Do you remember all the Old Testament is largely a story of Israelite being outnumbered but winning? These followers of Allah, of uh, Muhammad are defeating all these other tribes, and they're outnumbered and yet still win. And so he kind of gets some strength back, and after a few years, he decides to take 10,000 of his new warriors with him and go back to Mecca, where he is going to defeat his hometown and take it back over. So he heads back. And when he heads back to Mecca, guess what he does? There he goes to a particularly important spot in Mecca. There was allegedly in Mecca a little shrine. I say little, it's not that little. It's 50 feet tall by 30 feet wide, by 30 feet wide, by 30 feet wide. It's a square, it's a cube. This building is called the Kaaba or the Kaaba. Are y'all familiar with this? There's a picture on the screen. This is the most holy site in Islam. Every Muslim who is a financially able will travel at least once in their life to this spot and travel around this little cube called the Kaaba. What is it? What's the big deal about it? According to Islamic tradition, the Kaaba was originally built by either Adam and Eve or most would say Abraham. It's as old as Adam and Eve or Abraham. It was the spot where Adam and Eve were made, they allege. It is the spot where uh, Abraham and his son Ishmael would have uh, worshipped. And they believe that this was a spot of worship, a little temple of sorts where Abraham and Ishmael would have worshipped. But then after several years went by, it began to be overrun, corrupted by idolaters and in Uh, the day of Muhammad, that little shrine was filled with idols. So he came back to this shrine, and he walks around it evidently seven times. And after the seventh time, he walks inside of it. And with a stick, he begins pointing at all the idols, and allegedly all the idols begin to fall over. And he cleared clean, so to speak, all the idolatry out of this temple. And it became the holiest spot today, If you go to the Kaaba or the Kaaba, here is what you'll find. It was, it's this big old box. It's covered with this black silk cloth. 
that has all this gold Quranic verses embroidered all over it, there is a special stone in the eastern corner of the structure. This stone is allegedly a special stone set there by Ishmael and Abraham. As the story goes, Abraham wanted Ishmael to find a unique stone different from all the other stones around to point to the corner of this building. Ishmael didn't find it, so God provided him one. Allah provided him one. And he puts this black stone. It was originally white and allegedly became black due to the sins of people. And it is there to this day. You go Google this. There is in the corner of the Kaaba a silver bracket. And inside of this silver kind of stainless steel looking bracket, there's a black shiny stone. Some think it was a meteorite of old. And this stone is try. Most Muslims try to touch it or kiss it in some way, shape, or form. I'm guessing it's pretty stinking hard to do since there's countless millions of around the world, but they all try to circle the Kaaba and touch this stone. It's some, you know, I guess it's regarded as holy of some kind. And so Muhammad reestablishes the Kaaba as this major central location of worship. Mecca all of a sudden becomes the hub of everything. Now here's what's really interesting. When Muhammad started this, he was actually trying to kind of like work with Judaism. But the Jews didn't like what he was doing because he wasn't lining up with what they believed. They rejected him. And what happens when you get rejected? Human nature is to say, oh, yeah, well, I'll show you. And that's essentially what happened. He got rejected by the Jews in Arabia, and he began to superimpose upon them his own view of everything, plus with the crazy revelations he was having, as if he was the new religious leader of the day. He was the next great prophet of God. So he reestablishes Mecca as his home base, but then only a couple years later, 632 A.D., he ends up dying at the age of 62. At the time of his death, he had about 40 to 50,000 followers. But these followers that came in his wake are the ones who essentially created modern-day Islam. They begin to spread out over all the known world. And very quickly, Islam splits into two denominations. These denominations have lasted to this day. You know these denominations. I just recited to them early, you to them earlier. They're all over the news. The Islam basically split into two sects. It wasn't Catholics and Protestants. It was Sunnis and Shiites. Let me describe the difference between Sunnis and Shiites. Sunnis were the group of uh, Muslims that believed that the rightful successor to Muhammad should have been a man named Abu Bakr. He was just an incredible leader, evidently, of that day. Those were the Sunnis. They followed him. But there was another group called the Shiites or the Shias, and they thought, nah, we're not going to follow Abu Bakr. We're going to follow Muhammad's son-in-law, the boy that married his daughter Fatima. We're going to follow a man named Ali. And they began to split. To this day, 90% of Muslims are, are Sunnis. If you go look at Islam in almost every corner of the world, it's predominantly Sunni. That's where you see Islam in Saudi Arabia. Sunnis dominate the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, etc. But there is a small 10% group called the Shiites, and they are largely centered in Iraq 
and Iran and Azerbaijan and even a little bit in Bahrain as well. There's kind of a subgroup of Shias uh, that are focused in Syria, but in general, this is the makeup of Islam. Now let's talk through what exactly did Muhammad teach? We've kind of gotten this historical sketch now, but what is the substance of Islam? What made it so different from Christianity? Well, to begin with, there was a different authority, a different text, a different holy book. As I already said, Muhammad believed that he received a revelation from Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. They called him Jabril. And he believed that this message, this recitation, the Quran, was the literal words of God. They take the Quran not so much to be their equivalent of the Bible. They take the Quran to almost be the equivalent of Jesus. His words are literally the revelation of God's will. That's the sort of seriousness with which they take it. The Quran emphasizes three things. One God, we call that monotheism. It emphasizes guidance, how you're supposed to live according to this one God's will. And it emphasizes judgment. There is a judgment coming. But there is another text that honestly might be a little bit more influential than the Quran. There was a text that basically came after the Quran that summarized all the application and interpretation Muhammad had of the Quran. What does this book mean? If you read the Quran, it doesn't read like the Bible. The Bible reads in historical narrative. It kind of starts and largely finishes in a big story. The Quran doesn't do that. It's just a compilation of allegories and parables and metaphors and all this poetic language that keeps repeating and repeating. You've got to read the entire book, which I had to do a long time ago, and kind of summarize it all together to figure out its point. So there was another book that was compiled together called the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A-H. This had all the traditions and practices of Muhammad written in there. And it would describe things on how to brush your teeth like Muhammad did, seriously. There are actually some major toothbrush or toothpaste companies sell toothpaste with a special ingredient that Muhammad evidently used because Muslims like to do what he did. And it actually sells. Isn't that crazy? It gave instructions on how to pray, how to obey the Quran. All those little teachings are called the Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H. Those were the particular nuggets of wisdom that they would learn. Okay, now what do they believe? We know what the books are, but what did the books teach? Let's talk about Islam's theology. Islam can be summarized in six key articles. These are the six main beliefs of the faith. Let me very briefly overview them for you. Six key things summarize the Islamic faith. The first article of faith is what we would call the oneness of God. They believe, as I've now emphasized multiple times, in the singularity of God. They have a famous phrase they repeat over and over again. You've probably heard it on TV. This phrase is called the Shahada, and this phrase reads something like this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Have you heard that before? That is a famous statement that they'll say time and time and time again. In fact, uh, the statement is so renowned that evidently in Egypt, patriarchs of the family upon the birth of a new child will whisper that phrase into their ear at their birth to get that in their system, so to speak, from the very beginning of their life. It is the key summarizing statement of, uh, of Islam. Therefore, they believe that if you believe in anything but one God, you are an infidel, which is why they view Christianity 
as nothing more than infidels because Christianity, unlike Islam, doesn't view Jesus as a prophet. Christianity, as we well know, believe, trust, and love, views Jesus as God himself. And they would say that is a perversion of the singularity of God. That is not monotheism. That is uh, idolatry. So that's the first article of Islam. The second article, shocking. You might be like, what? This is the second article? The second key belief of six is that they believe in angels. (laughs) Isn't that odd that that's such a major thing for them? But they believe in angels. There are many angels mentioned in the Quran, Gabriel, Michael. They even have some guardian angels, two evidently for every person. Uh, They even have a Satan-like figure called uh, Iblis or Shetan, These were, you know, some of their angelic figures. The third article of faith, this is going to shock some of you. The third article of faith is what they call their holy books. Did you know Islam affirms the first five books of the Old Testament? The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Did you know the Islamic faith affirms the Psalms of David. They believe that to be a holy book. Did you know Islam affirms the Gospels of Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they view all of them that we read to have been corrupted and that they misrepresent Allah. They misrepresent who Jesus really is which is why God sent a final prophet to clear it up, Muhammad. They believe Muhammad came to clarify what had been corrupted in the first six centuries since Jesus came. That's their third article. We'll come back to some of those details in a moment. Their fourth article is they believe in prophets and messengers. Now, let me, you're like, what's the difference? In their mind, a prophet is one who orally shares God's word. But a messenger not only does that, but has a book with him. So, in other words, all messengers are prophets, but not all prophets are messengers. They believe in these men as prophets. Guess what? Do you want to know who their prophets are? It's not all the crazy Arabic names you hear on the news. Their prophets are Aaron, Abel, Abraham, Cain, David, the disciples, Elisha, Enoch, Eve, Ezra, Goliath, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Jesus, John the Baptist, Jonah, Joseph, Lot, Mary, Moses, Noah, Pharaoh, Samuel, Saul, Solomon, Jesus. Isn't that amazing that these are names that Islam affirms? They read Deuteronomy 18.18, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. They read that verse in our Bible and say that was a prophecy of Muhammad. They read the promise Jesus makes. Do you remember what Jesus says? When I leave you, I am going to send you a paraclete, a helper, Who is the paraclete? Who is the helper? The Holy Spirit of God. Muslims interpret that to be a prophecy of Muhammad, who would come and be the helper we need. They believed in the prophets and the messengers. Their fifth article is they believe, this might shock some of you, they believe in the resurrection, though they don't believe Jesus was. (laughs) They believe in the resurrection and a judgment to come. 
They believe one day we are all going to face judgment. There are going to be signs of the ends of the times. They believe a trumpet will blow and judgment will come and all people will have to cross this bridge over hell. And if you make it across the bridge, you get to heaven. If you don't, you fall off the bridge, you fall into hell. This is their belief of the end times. And then their sixth and final key doctrine is they believe in what's called predestination or faith. They believe that God knows and determines absolutely everything, and thus they have this fatalistic view with most things that, bless Allah, whatever happens is His will. Let me give you one, uh, a fourth question for us to interrogate tonight. What makes Islam look so different from Christianity? Obviously, they have some odd views, odd beliefs, but, you know, so do the Jehovah's Witnesses. So do Mormons. But, you know, we, you probably have Mormons, you probably have friends that are Mormons, you didn't even know it. They just don't look all that different. I remember I had friends uh, that lived behind me in Oklahoma City growing up that I had no idea they were any different than me except they weren't allowed to drink soda. The only soda they could drink was root beer. And I always thought that was so weird, but I loved root beer, and I was like, well, okay, that well, sounds good to me, until I realized they were Mormons, and you can't drink caffeine, but root beer doesn't have caffeine. At least uh, the certain brand of root beer doesn't have caffeine, and that was the only one they could drink. You wouldn't have known it. But how many of you have Islamic friends and you don't know it? I mean, it is so painfully obvious. Why do they look so distinct, so different? It is because in Islam there are five core key pillars that mark the faith. Five key things, and this is renowned. Everybody knows this. this is, I didn't make this up. This isn't me attempting to summarize this for you. Go Google five pillars of Islam. Everybody knows it. I was taught this in college. The first pillar of Islam is what is called the shahada, or the confession of faith. I already told you this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That phrase is recited five times every day in loudspeakers around Islamic cities before they are called to prayer. It's whispered in the ears of all the newborns. It is the confession that every Muslim must make, and only when they make that confession, only then are they brought into what's called the Ummah. That is kind of what we would call the church. They are only a part of the Ummah, or the community of Muslims, when they can confess with all Muslims worldwide, there is one God, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is what are called the five daily prayers. This might be the most distinct aspect of Islam. If you all are kind of familiar with Islamic culture, you know there's mosques that dot the landscape. I was just, as I shared with you earlier, had a layover in uh, Istanbul, and there's a major mosque right outside of Istanbul. It has those tall minarets, those little towers, prayer towers, and you will see people praying throughout the airport. Blake and I were sitting, waiting for our flight. I got up to go to the bathroom. And as I'm in the airport bathroom, which, by the way, the Istanbul airport, the nicest airport I've ever been in. <laughs> Do you want to know, Blake and I were, I think we calculated we were in nine airports on this trip. And do you want to know what the two worst, by far, worst airports were? New York City in the great U.S. of A. and Dulles uh, in Washington, D.C., U.S. of A. All the other ones were amazing, and the nicest without a close second was the Istanbul airport. In this airport, we go in this beautiful bathroom, and there is on the mirror of this bathroom a warning. Do not use this water for 
cleansing. They have a special word for it, for ritual cleansing, because there is a practice of cleansing yourself before you come and participate in these prayers. It's, it's pretty wild. It's this washing where they will come and they'll wash their hands, their forearms, their feet, their ankles, their mouth, their nose, their head, to ritually purify themselves to come before Allah in prayer. They do so five times a day before sunrise, at noon, in the afternoon, at sunset, and then later at night. Every Muslim is expected to do this. If you're in a predominantly Islamic city, like you know Istanbul or Mecca, Jeddah, etc., you are going to see, hear it be announced over loudspeakers. It's a major part of their culture. You'll hear this call, this noise. You probably can even hear it in your head because it's in so many movies, and it was even on the news at times. You'll often hear somebody say, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is prophet. Of course, they'll say it in Arabic. And they'll all go and do a prayer. Now, when I say prayer, it's not so much like how we pray. When we pray, we're making petitions and requests. Their prayer is more ritualistic, going through motions, reciting things. It's, it's, you're literally like, it's the old adage, going through the motions. That's literally what you're doing. But they believe it to be a holy practice. It's the five daily prayers. Some of you may have Islamic co-workers, and you may have noticed that they get up throughout the day, and they'll go maybe to the corner of an office or into a closet or a special place where they will go and kneel and do their special prayers. When I was in college, I would, uh, was invited to go to a local mosque in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And when I went in there, I was allowed to, they knew who I was, they knew I was a Baptist preacher, but I was allowed to come in and observe their prayers. It is in Islamic faith most preferable that you do your prayers in a mosque. In fact, as I was outside the mosque, no joke, I met a young Muslim from the University of Arkansas who was walking a mile to the mosque for prayer time. And I said, why are you doing this? If it doesn't really matter where you pray, he said, for every step I take towards the mosque, I get a reward from Allah. And he believed that every step he took from his dorm room or wherever he was going to the mosque, it was adding up merit, treasure for him that would commend him before Allah one day. Pretty wild, isn't it? The second pillar of Islam. A third pillar. Have you all ever heard of Ramadan? Ramadan is a month-long period. It lasts 30 days. It is between the two crescent moons. Uh, actually, we're in Ramadan right now. It just began a couple days ago. And it is a season of fasting. They fast from sunup to sundown. So they get to eat before the sun rises, and they sure get to eat after the sun sets. Ramadan comes from an Arabic word which means scorching heat, and it's referring to burning sins away. It's the ninth month on the Islamic calendar. Islam has a different calendar than us. Their year one begins the day that Muhammad left, uh, ran away from uh, Mecca to Medina. That flight, you remember me describing that earlier? What was that? I'm gonna look, I gotta look at my notes. The year 613 AD, 622 AD, June of 622, he flees from Medina, uh, from Mecca to Medina. That's year one for them. So they have a different calendar. The last 10 days of Ramadan are especially sacred for them, uh, where they'll do a lot of praying in particular, and they celebrate every night with a, usually a great feast. They fast not only from food, they usually fast during the sunup to sundown period from tobacco, often, you know, intimate relations with a spouse, any sort of 
uh, dependence, something you'd really like. They tend to fast from those things during this period, and they believe it to be a time of spiritual uh, refining and refreshment. That's their third pillar. Their fourth pillar is called almsgiving. In short, they just want to give a lot of money to people in need. It's, can, it's uh, generally agreed upon that you should give 2.5% of your wages throughout the year to causes. Their fifth and final pillar is notable. It's called the Hajj, or a pilgrimage to Mecca. I described this earlier, that they expect all Muslims who are able to go one time in their life to the Kaaba in Mecca, where they will uh, circumnavigate that uh, structure and have this holy time of prayer, so to speak. This are, these are the five pillars, it's distinctives, of Islam. So let's conclude our study tonight then by taking a step back from this rather enigmatic faith and figure out how does it compare and contrast from Christianity? Because if you've noticed, have you guys noticed the odd similarities? And I use that word loosely because obviously it's a different faith. But did you realize, how many of you are a little surprised tonight? Be honest, because I was when I first studied this. How many of you are a little surprised tonight at all the shared content between the two? Because when you think of Islam, you just think of like, jihadist terrorists and different culture, just you think other. You think like it, got to, it has to be as different as Buddhism is, as different as Hinduism is. And then you realize, wow, this is actually an odd Abrahamic faith, very different from Christianity, more different than Judaism is, but strange commonalities. I want to get, conclude our study tonight by illustrating for you key differences. The first key difference is that Islam genuinely holds to a different God. Now, here's why I have to emphasize this. There is a rampant belief amongst a lot of Christians that the God of Islam and the God of Christianity are the same God, that Allah is Yahweh, because they actually talk about the same person who's interacting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, why would we say this is not the same God? Does anybody know? Because what if somebody does say, hey, there's just multiple ways of the same God. You call him Allah, you call him Yahweh, but it's, they all believe in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you know, they believe in a creation. They both believe in a creator God. They, they both believe in a sovereign God. When you heard me talk about that pillar of predestination, some of you are like, that sounds like the God of the Bible. He's in control of everything. We should live in such a way where we realize that anything that happens in this life ultimately is by the will of God. That sounds Christian. What, what's the difference? And of course, that's why we must know with every fiber of our being one key critical distinction in Christianity, and that is John 14 and verse 6. What does that verse say? I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No man comes to the Father but through me. In other words, let me give you Kyler's translation. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God, Yahweh. Yahweh without Jesus is not Yahweh. It's Allah, or whatever you want to call him. It's an idol. It's a false god. It's, it's other. No man comes to the Father but through me. They have a different God because Allah is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not to mention even some of the ways Allah is described in the Quran vary from the God of the Bible. Another key distinction, as I've already now attested, is Jesus. It is odd that Islam affirms Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what they believe about Jesus? This is going to shock you. 
They believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Did you know that? They believe Jesus lived a sinless life. They believe Jesus performed mighty miracles. I don't know which ones they agree or disagree with. I don't, I'm not enough of a scholar to know what they, have corru- they believe is corrupted. But they believe in a virgin-born, sinless, miracle-working man named Jesus Christ. But they do not believe Jesus was God, which puts them in league with Jews. But unlike the Jews of Judaism, they don't really believe Jesus died on a cross. They don't believe Jesus uh, died. They believe he was taken up and never tasted death. They deny the heart of the gospel of Christianity, substitutionary atonement. They don't believe Jesus died for people. It's a different God, a different Christ. Theirs is a different Bible, a different Old Testament. There is overlap. What's crazy about Islam is there's a lot of overlap with our Old Testament. They believe in some conceptual things that we believe in. They believe in monotheism. They believe there's one God. In fact, you want to know what's interesting about Islam? When Islam began to conquer the known Roman Empire, if you were a polytheistic idolater, you believed in a multitude of gods, they'd kill you or force you to become monotheistic. But guess what they did to the existing monotheists? Who were the existing monotheists in the Roman Empire? Christians and Jews. Do you know what Muslims would do to them? They'd say, well, since you're a monotheist, you can stay as long as you pay us a tax. Isn't that wild? They allowed a lot of them to live as long as you just paid them off because they were monotheists. It's so close. They, they shared that key distinction with us. They also believed that God was a creator God and that God was a judging God who would come in great judgment. They also believed that a follower of this God needed to follow his truth, needed to live a chaste life, needed to submit to God's will. They also believed uh, that the historical narrative of the Old Testament was largely true. Man, that feels like Christianity, except where were the differences? And of course, as we've already tested the differences between Jesus and Allah and God and Yahweh Allah himself, they also believe different ways on how the uh, Old Testament was put together. They believe that the Quran reveals God's will, but not God himself, Allah himself. Whereas we, when we read the Bible, we are not only seeing the will of God, we are encountering God. This is how he has revealed himself to us. Ours Old Testament is a different Old Testament from Islam. Consequently, Islam has a different gospel. The gospel of Islam is no gospel. It is, in essence, this teaching. You are saved by submitting to the will of Allah. If you submit, by the way, remember, what does the word submit? What is the word submit in Arabic? Islam. If you are a Muslim, if you submit to God's will, you will achieve salvation. And what is the Christian gospel? You cannot. There's no way you ever could. The only way you can be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hence, Christianity. And so, my friends, the reason a study like this tonight... Lord willing, will be profitable for you, is it'll help you construct in your mind a clearer, fairer portrait of Muslims. The best way Christians can engage 
those with alternative worldviews is to learn their worldview and to not caricature it, to know it, to know them, to have your heart break for them. Have you found that it's hard, it's very hard to evangelize somebody you don't love? Have you found it's hard to pray for somebody you don't really care about? Have you found in particular it's hard to show any Christ-like love towards somebody you fear? It's common. I mean, I'm no different from you, by the way. But everything changes when your heart begins to change. And so studying these world religions, Lord willing, will give you, as it's given me, a more humanized view of the deception people are under. It'll help you realize where are points of contact and where are differences. What are things I can talk about? You may not have realized how much common material you have with your Muslim friends. You'd be like, well, we can talk about all kinds of things, and let's talk about where there's divergences here. And let's understand what's interesting is you're going to learn is that most Muslims can't and won't engage in these debates on particulars because in their religious structure, they believe, oh, that's not my job to know. Let's go ask the imam. By the way, have you heard the words caliph and imam? Caliph Sheikh Muhammad, that's a name you hear on the news a lot. Or, you know, a particular imam and a mosque. Uh, the caliphs are the leaders of the Sunni tribes. The imams are the leaders of the Shia tribe. That's why you hear about imams often in Iran, because Iran is a Shia nation. But you hear about caliphs in places like Saudi Arabia um, or Afghanistan or whatnot, because they are predominantly Sunnis. If you talk to a Muslim, they're probably going to want to go defer to an imam or to a caliph, depending on what uh, denomination, so to speak, they come from, because in their worldview, they know all the answers. Now, does Christianity set itself up that way? Do I present myself as your great high priest, that you guys need to come to me to get to God? That if you need, prayer, if you need something from God, come to me, and then I'll pray on your behalf? Now, I pray with you, as I, ex- I would ask you to pray for me, but God hears your prayers no different than he hears mine. I may know more about the Bible just by virtue of all the years I've spent studying it, but it doesn't mean I have any more particular, unique, spiritual insight from God that you lack. In Islam, that is a different belief. And so as you engage, it honestly, it might be enlightening for them to hear how much insight you even have in your conversations. It might be stunning to them. I want to pray for you that if the Lord brings any Muslims across your paths, you might use some of the knowledge you gained even here tonight to give you an opportunity to bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus, whom they regard as a virgin-born, sinless prophet of God. And you can say he's more than a prophet. He is the son of the living God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and yours. Why don't you join me as we pray to this end, and let's ask God to do a move in this day to push back the darkness of Islam. Father in heaven, I'm asking that by the power of your spirit and to the glory of Jesus Christ, you would use us to bring the hope of Christianity, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the world to those who desperately need it. Would you draw our minds and hearts to Muslim friends we know? Help us to be brave, bold, and bring this hope to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys come on back next week. I think I'm going to teach on Buddhism next week. It's either Buddhism or Hinduism. That's the next two weeks. We'll see you next week.